0: Kom, han sågs och lyssnades till och han segrade. David Sedaris från USA gästade internationell författarscen den 18 mars i ett samtal med Ica Johannesson. Ingemar Fast heter jag. Jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Och nu uppmanar jag dig att lyssna till detta synnerligen. Lustfyllda samtal.
1: Welcome to this talk with David Sedaris. We will be opening for questions from the audience at the end. So please, if there is a question that I don't ask or something that you've been thinking about, so please hold that till the end. We'll be opening before I. We'll bombard Mr. Sedaris with loads of questions. We will listen to him read a piece out of *Calypso*. What will you be reading for us?
0: Uh, well, I was thought I, I never like to read anything that involves any setup. You know, when somebody reads something and they say, "Well, first you need to know this is a point in the novel where uh, Dale and Julian are driving from California." To Colorado. It was a. Oh, let me explain, <clears throat> too, that they were. <laughs> I hate that. So <laughs> I was just going to read something that doesn't involve any. Should I move over there? Does the light change? Or should yeah, I just they can stay put forward? on the
1: light for you. Okay. So you I'll can just stand, stand up. up
0: when I read because, mm-hmm. it, it. So this is a, a short essay that I wrote, uh, the Guardian, for the Guardian in England, and uh, Hugh is my boyfriend. So that's all the setup you need. It was a Friday night in mid July around nine o'clock, and Hugh and I were at the dinner table eating this spaghetti he makes with sausage in it. We've been together for almost three decades, and for some reason I'd waited until this moment to ask how many people he'd slept with before we became a couple. (laughs) Hugh looked at the ceiling, which is crisscrossed with beams and, to my great consternation, spider webs. I'm vigilant. Really, I am. But out in the country, there's no keeping up with them. So, I said, I'm thinking, he told me. I used to know how many people I'd slept with. After meeting Hugh, though, I took myself off the market and the figure faded from memory. If I were to slog through all my old diaries, I could certainly retrieve it. Twenty-eight, thirty? Do I include those early gropings? They felt significant at the time, but did they qualify as sex if you never took your clothes off? Or actually touched anything with your bare hands? I wanted to ask Hugh, but he was too busy counting. <laughs> Thirty-two, thirty-three, I put down my fork. You're not finished yet? She said, you're making me lose track. It shouldn't have surprised me. When you look like Hugh, all you have to do is leave the house and people will approach you. Especially gay men, the dogs. (laughs) His handsomeness was never my personal opinion. Rather, like the roundness of the earth, it is something society generally agrees upon. Without my face to use as bait, I had to work a lot harder than he did. There are times, I'll admit, when I had to beg. That said, some of Hugh's earlier choices seemed poorly thought out to me, <laughs> especially once AIDS came along, 35, 36... Every man ticked off on his fingers was someone I'd been compared to at one point or another. Not overtly, he's anything but cruel, but surely it happened. Someone kissed better than I did. Someone had more stamina, a more seductive voice, bigger muscles. I'm confident enough to compete against a dozen of his exes, but he was moving on to the population of a small town. (laughs) 38, 39... By what miracle had neither of us contracted AIDS? How had we gotten away? I don't just mean later, when people knew to be safe, but back in the days when it didn't have a name and no one understood how it spread. One of the men Hugh had lived with, a professor he had his first year of college, had died of it in the late 80s, and surely there were others on both my side and his. Yet, for some reason, we'd escaped, had prospered even. Now, here we were, the shadows lengthening, our spaghetti growing cold as he hit the half-hundred mark, then blithely sailed beyond it. <laughs> Whore. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. <clears throat> Did you ever find out the exact number? I don't think Hugh you
0: know if like I said, if I went through all my old diaries, I could find the exact number, but for a lot of people, I mean you, you know kind of lose track after I, I mean i don't I mean I stopped sleeping with other people once I met Hugh, so it's just been one person since. <laughs> I can keep track of that number, but before that,
1: <laughs> you've been in Stockholm, you and Hugh, for a few days. Yes. What have you been doing here? Have you been spending your time?
0: Yeah, school of village <laughs> share Pando Got. Right? We've been buying furniture. Oh, we just got an apartment in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some great uh, furniture shops here. Uh, the best was. Uh, Modernity.
1: Mm-hmm. What kind of furniture were you looking for?
0: We were looking for like mm, Danish and Swedish furniture from the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. and we got a lot
1: of it. <laughs> Anything you'd like to tell us about? You know what's funny, because
0: <clears throat> the other, fur- you know, like in England, the furniture that we have. None of it was manufactured. Everything was just made by one you know, one person made this cabinet mm. and you know, it's 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 old furniture. Um, but here and when you look at start looking at like mid century furniture some will say, you know, that's an Uli Tuler and then you say, Ooh, Uli Tuler <laughs> and then <laughs> they'll say that's Uli Tuler, that's like ninety five thousand kroner and you think, Well it should be it's Uli Tuler and <laughs> And they just get you that way. Everything, I mean, this, someone designed this table, but I, someone designed this glass. But if you told me the name of the person you designed, oh, I'd be so extra careful with it. And I would be so, <laughs> who designed, you know, if you attach the name to the bottle, and then you say, the cork is Then I would, ooh, I got to have the cork with the bottle. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of thing works. Yeah, exactly, on me. And I was carrying my notebook around and then so they would say uh, oh that costs, you know they would tell me how much it costs and then I would write down the you know the names of the people who made uh because it just then the price just seems to be
1: justified. <laughs> and you've also been uh, practicing your Swedish. I have been why practicing. Did, why do you want to learn Swedish?
0: Well, because I was coming here, and so mm-hmm. I thought, Sigh. I use this learn-to-speak-Swedish course, and everybody on it, they mumble, because I was playing you a little bit of a backstage. And they just... And even when it's good news that they're giving, they're just really... And then no one has any passion. But the good thing about... This program, though, is that they don't slow down for your benefit. Mm-hmm. And they speak pretty quickly. And that's actually good. And since I've been here, I was interviewed on the radio the other day, and the guy had to speak in Swedish for a while, and I would think, he just said, because. And he said, 19. And, and he said, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, day. And he said, tomorrow. He's going to 19 tomorrow. You know, As so I try to <laughs> form it into a story, but I try to do that whenever Hugh and I go to another country mm-hmm. and it just gives you something to listen to. It makes you listen. You know, you're listening, you're eating dinner and you're listening to the people next to you. Just for something you might... And it connects you more to the... It just connects you more. And people... And plus here, you always have English as a safety net. So it's not like going to... Uh, you know, in Japan, everyone speaks 17 words of English. And that's it. They speak 17 words of English. So it's really good to know some Japanese there. And you don't necessarily have the safety net. But... Um, and plus, I you don't know, sometimes you go to another country and you realize they don't have articles. Or you realize that... Like I was... Hen right, Han and Hoon and Hen, yeah. mm-hmm. and you were like the first people to do that, mm-hmm. and that, it just tells you a lot about a culture that, um, oh, and sneepa. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a country has pretty much checked all the big things off the list if they say, you know, we need to sit down and come up with a word for a little girl's vagina that everyone can agree on. That, <laughs> That's like, OK, healthcare Check. You know, like.
1: <laughs> it was really hard starting to use that word when I got kids, though, because you have to start learning the new words because it sounded so silly. Well, when I learned that
0: on my last trip here, I learned that, and then I went on a tour in England, and I said, what do you call little girl's vagina? <laughs> and I asked 17 people, and I got 17 different answers. Did and you also get 17 like, why do you want to know?
1: Not in England, no. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, let's talk about, I have so many questions for you, and I'm guessing the audience does too. Um, But let's start with, since I'm a writer myself, and I read your books with great enjoyment, I'm interested in your writing process. Mm. Do you write every day?
0: I write every day. I get up in the morning and I go right to my desk. I don't like to talk before I go to my desk. Like if the phone rings, I don't answer it. Uh, and so I just go right to my desk every day and work. Why don't you like to talk before you write? Mm, I'd rather put it on paper. I mean, I usually start by reading, writing in my diary. Then I have my notebook and I make notes. And I, you know, so I've got a list of things to write about. Um, and I, I don't know. I would just rather get to it and not talk before I do it. Mm. Uh, and then I write till lunchtime, and then I go out for a walk from like two o'clock until eight o'clock at night.
1: <laughs> I do
0: from two Funny until Funny, because it's true.
1: Hmm? Funny, because it's true. Yeah, I mean it's a lot
0: of a lot of walking, um, and then I go back to work for. Couple hours, and when do you sleep? I go to bed because I go out then for again for another walk, at like at midnight. So I, I like to sleep from like three until ten.
1: When you do write, um, like for example, the, the texts in this collection, mm-hmm. some of them are published in the New Yorker. Some of them, like for for example, this one was published in the Guardian, and some are unpublished. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you write. Is it by assignment or is it always out of just your own head? Every
0: now and then I take an assignment, but I don't take an assignment that involves going anywhere or, you know, like if somebody said, uh, oh golly, there's a festival in Italy where people throw tomatoes at each other. So a couple of years ago, a magazine said, we want you to go there and find the funny. And, I didn't do it, I don't, because I don't want to go somewhere and then feel like I have to write about it. And especially when you're writing humor, two things you don't want, like a regular deadline, because then you're like, what's up with socks? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you don't want a regular deadline, and then you don't want to be, have to force it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if you go to another country, sometimes you find something. You come home with something to write about, and sometimes you don't. But I don't want to force it. If I didn't come upon something, and I want to come upon something organically, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, interview people. I'm not a journalist. I'm not comfortable interviewing people. Um, I just like to stumble upon things.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you find that you stumble upon things a lot or do you have dry spells where you don't write?
0: Mm. You know, I feel like it all has to do with saying yes. You know, So many people say no, and that just guarantees you that nothing's going to happen. That said, like I had a lipoma, which is a fatty tumor on my side, and it was harmless. I'd gone to a doctor and he said, You know, dogs get them all the time. And you could have this for the rest of your life. There's no need to remove it. When I went to a doctor, and I said, will you remove it? I said, because I want to feed it to a snapping turtle. And he said, it's against the law in America for me to give you anything I remove from your body. So I was saying that on stage, like, what kind of country do we live in? And this woman came up and said, I'll cut it out of you tonight. (laughs) And I said, yes. <laughs> but then there have been other times I'll be on tour and someone will say, Well, why don't you, we go out for dinner afterwards? And I'll say no. Mm-hmm. But when the woman said, I'll cut that tumor out of you, I was like, Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good time. That's something good to say yes mm-hmm. to. Also, I think it helps me. Uh, one thing I've really been impressed by in Stockholm is the lack of traffic. Mm-hmm. You can always cross the street here. You know, jaywalk. But I mean, you, um, compared to other cities in the world, I don't, I don't. You just don't see that many cars on the road here. Um, and I never learned to drive, and so I'm not, I'm, am not, not an independent person. And when you're not independent, <laughs> there's more things to write about as well, because you have to take the bus or the subway, or you have to walk. And and I'm not. I have no relationship with my phone. Most people that are walking are like that, and they don't, they don't see anything. Uh, so, I, so there's a lot. There's a whole world out there that you're privileged to enjoy if you're not independent and if you don't have any friends calling <laughs> you around.
1: <laughs> If you're always at the mercy of someone. I have
0: to go to this. Uh, I have to get have a, a little medical procedure done next week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A doctor <clears throat> is going to stick a camera up the hole in my penis, snake it up there, and take pictures of my bladder, and then pre- possibly take little bites out of my mm-hmm. bladder with this thing. And so I have to go to the hospital, and they're going to put me under. And a friend, somebody came to dinner last week who's German, who doesn't, who she lives in, she's Hugh's friend. And she said, you know, they're going to, <laughs> no, I like her a lot, but she's, 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 she's sure? Hugh's friend, and she lives in, in France, but she's German, and she was in town for the book fair. She came to the house for dinner, and she said, they're going to tell you you have to bring a friend with you. because they're putting you on during Mm -hmm. your friend has to help you get home. And I realized that everyone I thought was my friend is just a shopkeeper. And and sometimes I think, oh, I'll go see my friends at the Dover Street Market. I'll go see my (laughs) friends at (laughs) Yoji Yamamoto. They're not my friends. They're just put up with me because I spend money there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what would they say if I went into the Yoji Yamamoto store and I said, Curtis, would you come to the hospital with me on Thursday and see me home after? I wonder what they would... Try it. What they would think.
1: What do you think they'd do?
0: It's a really good question. I think they'd go in the back and say, how much money is he spent here? <laughs> That's what I think they would do.
1: <laughs> but how would you describe your relationship to writing? I
0: was a visual artist well i that 's what I wanted to be, and uh, I dropped out of college when I was twenty, and I started writing when I was twenty. I started keeping a diary and then I was still doing visual art and with the degree of success that you could have, you know I had things in the art museum you know it was a North Carolina art Museum, but still it was in the art museum and but but I noticed that the things that I saw didn't affect me as profoundly as the things that I read, because mm-hmm. you can't write without reading. So I started reading when I was twenty, and that's really it. When I was twenty-five, I thought I'm going to be a writer. I want to be a writer because when and I only said it to myself. But when you announce when you announce something like that, you're setting yourself up for failure, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's going to happen unless you do announce yourself and just direct your life and then say, okay, that's, that's it, that's what I want. But I've never, I never asked anybody for anything. I never submitted a story to a magazine. I never went to a place and asked, can I, can I read here? I never sent my book to a publisher. I just waited for people to ask me. Uh, because people like helping people. And people are always looking for people. And so I thought, I'll just put myself where they can find me. And so when I was in Chicago, I did a reading in class, and this guy said, I'm having a happening at my loft this Saturday. Do you think you can read something there? So I did, and there were like 14 people there. And then somebody said, I'm having a better happening (laughs) at my bigger loft two weeks from now can you read something there? And then somebody said, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? So, and I just said yes. Mm -hmm. I just kept saying yes and I used every reading as an opportunity to write new material and then it got to a point where I was in Chicago and I thought, you know, I want somebody to come up to me and say, do you have a book we can publish? But, so if I want that, I have to move to where books are published so I have to move to New York City. So I put myself in the environment where more, you know, the right people could ask me. But, uh, but it was always my strat. That was because, again, people like helping people. So let them help you, and don't ask them because that ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't, don't
1: let let me offer. Mm-hmm. How come you started reading so late? Because uh, well,
0: many writers start reading early. Right, and when I was in school, I read what I had to read, but I, mm. it just wasn't. If I was going to be killing time in my bedroom, I was drawing, you know, or painting or something, so I wasn't reading. But you know, you can be a folk artist, and you can live deep in the woods, and you can you can use you can paint stumps, and 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 you can make people feel something, you know, by the way you painted that stump. But you can't, there's no such thing as a folk writer. You know, you, you have to read and learn how to seduce a reader. And the only way to do that is by reading yourself, mm. so.
1: How did you find your voice?
0: I tried everyone else's first.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. I had, it usually uh, works.
0: <laughs> when I was in college, The first story that I wrote, the school gave me a grant to turn it into a little book. And so I printed, I don't know, 25 copies of this little book. And I I saw my teacher from that period not long ago. And he said, that was the funniest parody of a Raymond Carver story. (laughs) (laughs) And it it wasn't a parody. I mean, it was... (laughs) It was a very sincere story on my part, but <laughs> I, I sounded just like you know I was mm. trying on his voice and Joan Didion's voice, and eventually you find your own.
1: Mm. But it's just natural to try on
0: other people's first.
1: Yeah. Um, when you write, are you hard on yourself? Like, how much do you scrap a lot of text, or do you do you produce high quality directly that you're satisfied mm. with?
0: I would never give anybody a first draft, even a third or a fifth draft of what I've written, because it's just not good enough. So I'm going on this tour in the United States. I'm going to 40 cities. And so I have three new story, four, four new essays to read. Now I'll read them out loud and then go back to the hotel room and rewrite them and read them and rewrite them. Uh, and sometimes you read something out loud and you're like, wow, this this is bad. <laughs> and it's not fair to subject an audience to this again. Mm-hmm. You know? But then most things, though, they feel pretty close. And then you make some... I read out loud and I make notes while I'm reading and then I think, oh, this is a dull patch. People are coughing here. And that means that if they were reading, they were skimming. They'd be skimming mm-hmm. there. Or you just think, oh, I don't think people understand me here. I think I need to make myself clearer or gosh, you know, I, I need to describe Hugh's mother. I don't think anybody can see what she looks like. So And then by the end of the tour it's better shape and then I give it to the New Yorker and then I work start working with my editor there.
1: Mm.
0: But it's a lot of it's a lot. <sighs> I mean, (laughs) mean, generally speaking, it's a lot of work to get something Mm -hmm. in shape where it's Mm. in a book. But it's not compared to other people's jobs. You know what I mean? Like when I think the guy who's going to stick a wire up my penis. I mean, (laughs) I'd rather have my job than his. You know?
1: (laughs) When do you um, when you sit down and you start writing and describing situations? Um, what does a text have to have for you to know that it's going to be good? What kind of situations do you like? I love it when something
0: (coughs) happens and it's just ridiculous, or you notice (laughs) how ridiculous something is. Mm -hmm. That's always nice to me. Uh, Do you have an example? Well, you know, like... Snipa. I mean... (laughs) That's really ridiculous. And, but it's also, at the same time, it makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You can usually get a lot of, I don't like to be formulaic about it, but sometimes you go to another country and you, you can always get laughs off people's chauvinism. You know, like uh, probably the funniest thing I ever wrote, I mean by an audience is, I went to the Netherlands, and I just asked somebody, I said, what, what's your Christmas story? And they were like, well, there's St. Nicholas, and he lives in Spain. And he's a bishop, and he lives in Spain. And he has six to eight black men who were his... They used to be slaves, but now they're friends. And then they, <laughs> they come by boat from Spain on December 5th, and if children are bad, they beat them and kick them and stuff them into a sack. And... I, <laughs> and And so I wrote about that, Mm -hmm. and the audience would fall out of their seats, but the people falling out of their seats were like, no, Santa Claus lives at the North Pole, and he comes down (laughs) to your chimney and brings you (laughs) presents. And like, well, that's ridiculous, too, that you believe. It's like when people fight about religion, you know, when people are warring over religion. It's like, really? (laughs) (laughs) All religions, I think, are equally ridiculous. And if you can't see that, then mm-hmm. you have a real problem. If you're like, no, Jesus died and he came back to life, and he blah, 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 that's no sillier than, when, people like in America where people go after uh, Scientologists, you know, because they say that, oh, I don't know, somebody came in a spaceship. It's like, well, that's no dumber than what Baptist, it's really no dumber, it's newer mm-hmm. but it's no dumber <laughs> more modern so I like it, but you don't, again you don't want to be formulaic about things like that you know mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but I, that's what I live for just to uh, stumble upon some, but I want it to be organic, I don't want to go online and then Google like Easter traditions all over the world. I don't. I, I want to meet somebody and have them tell me something th- that leads to something, that leads to something, that leads to something. That's what I like. Mm.
1: It's kind of like your texts. They begin in one place and they take these really winding roads until they uh, end up where they're supposed to be. And one of them main reasons why I enjoy writing so much is because you're not always very likable in your texts. You paint sometimes a very bad picture of yourself and your thoughts. And that's traits that most of us have inside, but don't really talk about. And I wonder how, um, when did you decide to be so candid about uh, those things?
0: Well, I always figure that most people are alike. You know, we're all pretty much alike and that if if you can admit something bad about yourself, then people are thinking, yeah, I do that too, or I think the same thing. It's interesting, I have this radio program in England, and I'm recording a new series next week, and so I sent some new stories to my agent, and he said, I, don't, I mean, to my producer, and he said, I don't think we should do this when I think it makes you seem completely unlikable. <laughs> But what happened? I, w- I was in New Orleans, and my computer bag broke. Mm-hmm. So I went on Yelp. Do you have Yelp here? And I looked in, shoe repair. Mm-hmm. And so I found this guy who does shoe repair, and I went, and he had a shack that he does shoe repair in. And uh, he said, "Yeah, I'll have it for you tomorrow." And I said, "Because I have to leave town the day after tomorrow. I really have to have it tomorrow at four o'clock. No problem. I'll have it at four o'clock." I go back the next day. He's not there, and I wait until five thirty. And then he shows up and said, I had a doctor's appointment. Well he's yelling at me. (laughs) Didn't I tell you I had a doctor's appointment? I said, no. And he said, well, I did. And then we go in, and he hasn't even started my computer bag. And then he's, again, he's mad at me. And then, see, it's all going to take me a few minutes. And then he does it. He fixes it. And then the next morning at the airport, it breaks. (laughs) Now, is it that outlandish to expect someone to do a the job you paid them to do. I I didn't call him names. I didn't... I don't wish him well. Um, (laughs) But he said that that made me look bad. And I'm thinking... Why? Why? Why does that make me look bad? Why? I mean, you know what, I think it's it's complicated it becomes complicated because of race, you know, because he was black. Mm-hmm. But, but what favor are you doing him to say, well, he doesn't, you know, he's had a hard life, and so he doesn't. If you're in business, you're supposed to do what people pay. Your color doesn't, shouldn't, doesn't have anything to do with that, you know, but I mentioned it his race because in America race is so fraught you know what I mean when when i go back to the united states it's like they took a, a overcoat that was soaking in water and they put it on me and they say welcome home and that's race relations in america and it's it's something you can't escape it's something you can't not think about um and Maybe that's what complicated the story to him. Um, did but you, it's an did you not
1: at all p- agree of his comment, the, uh, the editor?
0: Oh, I don't agree with his comments. But I'd never read it out loud before. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read it out loud on my tour, and, and then read the room, and then see. Because it doesn't, I mean, who wouldn't be pissed off if, it's like if you go to a restaurant, and they he and I went to a restaurant in Paris and we both had white shirts on and we ordered beet salads and the waiter came <laughs> and he dropped a beet salad and it dropped from Hugh's shoulder onto my shoulder. <laughs> so we had white shirts with beets all over them. And he was like, Oh yeah, beets. <laughs> Tell me some waiter. And so I'm not gonna wish him well. I mean, the least he should have done is said, dinner's on us or Mm -hmm. something. But I think I'm allowed to judge him for dropping beets on my shirt. I Mm -hmm. mean, beets of
1: all things. But is it important to you to mention that uh, the the one fixing your bag is black? It was
0: important because... uh, when I went on Yelp, it sent me like three miles from my hotel, and I went on foot. And so the neighborhood really substantially changed. And, and there were like a lot of prostitutes in the neighborhood, and there were a lot of people approaching me and asking me for money and offering to sell me things. And so I wasn't really in my element. And that seemed important. To me, because other times, you know, if it's not important, you don't mention it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but when it is important, you mention it. And but again, I, I uh, it doesn't change the fundamental. To me, the fundamental thing is I paid this guy to do a job by a certain time. He wasn't there. Mm. He got mad at me, mm. <laughs> and then it broke. So Mm. it's not a revenge thing. I didn't say, this is his name, and this is where he is, and go get him. I didn't, you know.
1: (laughs) We'll see what the audiences say on your book tour. Yeah. And um, you pick a lot of inspiration from your family, your childhood, your upbringing, your family, uh, your boyfriend, Hugh which is here, by the way. For me, meeting Hugh was kind of even, I almost, had, almost said even more exciting than meeting you, but not really. But Hugh, wherever you are, you feel like family, even to me, to us, as well. And I'm Hugh guessing are of... is that right? <laughs> Hugh, er här. Hugh are here. <laughs> uh, Hugh are here. I mean, here, hos us.
0: Hugh are here. Wait a minute. I know how to say this. Ikvel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ja, bra. <laughs> um, Where are you Iqbal? How? Yeah. these lessons are really paying off <laughs> so well done okay so I'm, I imagine you've been getting this question so many times but what do the people closest to you say when you write about them
0: What most do you people like them? to be written about you know and you can tell who is going to be a pain about it you mm-hmm. know I mean, you can tell who's, who's just completely not going to go for it at all. And you don't even try. But not everybody's a good character. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people I know, they're wonderful people. But on paper, they're not good characters. They don't advance. Mm. They don't <laughs> advance the story. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people, let's say really controlling people. Those are good characters because they advance the story and they push things along. (laughs) Someone like Hugh who's a very practical person is a good character because he's somebody that I can bounce against in the story. My sister Lisa is one of the best characters. I'm so very fortunate to have (laughs) her because she's she is kind of a victim in the stories that she tells, but not in a bad way, if, if that makes sense, because she knows she got a story out of it. Mm-hmm. And she's really good at telling that story. And to me, when you get a story out of something, you you think, gosh, you know, my bag didn't get repaired, and it broke, but I got a story out of it. Maybe that's partly it, is that I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to get a story out of this, because... <laughs> I wasted all that time, and the bag didn't get fixed, so I demand a story out of this.
1: Yeah, there is, there is a character trait that's kind of easy to dislike. <laughs> but uh, um, tell us a bit about your family. Who, I mean, they produced you, who's funny. Your family produced Amy Sedaris, your sister, who's mm-hmm. also someone hooted. Also, very funny, and by the way you talk about your parents and your siblings, they all seem pretty funny so what was it in your household that made this
0: develop I, I see that in all big families mm-hmm. you know somebody who 's got six kids or more i don 't know I always find when I think of anyone I know who's got a big family i always they're funny i don 't know i don't know I think it's because you're you're competing for your parents' attention. You know, if you're an only child, then you get all that attention. But when you're from a big family, you can hide when you need to. Mm. And a lot of times when you're young, you need to hide, especially like when you're a teenager or you're, um, you know, you've done something wrong or you just try, you know, you haven't been making great grades. It's great to be able to hide. I feel sorry for kids now, you know, especially when they're, an only child. Get just that glare of that attention from your parents. I, 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 but I, if I had gotten that, I probably wouldn't be doing... Because when you get on stage, you're, you're basically you're saying, love me. Mm. And no amount is enough. No amount of love is enough love. Um, but my brother, he could have done whatever he wanted to. And... Amy and I were living in Chicago. And Amy had, was at Second City. And we said to Paul, you've got to come here. There's this place, Second City. They're going to love you. And he came to Chicago, and he stayed for two weeks. He, he just never wanted to leave Raleigh, North Carolina. And mm. he just content. And my sister Lisa just, no, doesn't. But they, anyone, Amy and I aren't special in my family. We just were ambitious,
1: I think. And the other ones
0: weren't ambitious, not in that regard, no mm-hmm. they, they had other things. no, they never thought of 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 I, I I kind of divide the world into two groups: people who pay someone to listen to their problems, and people who get paid to tell people <laughs> their problems.
1: Okay <laughs> but uh. Um, Do you ever get tired of writing about yourself? No, but I don't think... You know, I never read
0: anything about myself, but especially if it's something bad, a lot of people like to tell you about it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that writing about yourself is more narcissistic than just writing anything. If you write a novel, you want people to read the novel. And if you write about yourself, you want people to read it. So it's all just writing you want people to read. I just think of it more like Cindy Sherman takes pictures of herself in different disguises. I don't think of her as a narcissist. I just think she uses herself for her work. That's what I do. But I don't think it's any more, I don't think I'm any more self involved than anybody in this room.
1: Mm. When writing about your family, um, you write about um, everything from, like in this la- latest book, your father's aging, mm-hmm. and your mother's alcoholism, and your sister's suicide. Um, when writing about things that are um, a bit more revealing about people and how they feel than just uh, you know, more funnier, easier things, how do you approach that when you start writing?
0: I wait for them to die.
1: <laughs> That's, what That's awful.
0: <laughs> no, I mean I wait for them to die. I mean, I mean, if my mother was still alive, I wouldn't write about her alcoholism. Mm. You know what I mean? But
1: so, so. But your dad is still alive. You're right, barely. <laughs> I mean, you're terrible. <laughs> I mean,
0: he's going to turn 96 in a few weeks, but. That happened with the, the New York Times uh, when the book came out. They interviewed me, and, and the journalist said, um, she said, you write some kind of harsh things about your father in this book. Um, and she said, weren't you afraid how, you know, that he was going to be hurt? And I said, I, I thought he'd be dead by the time the book <laughs> came out. I mean, if someone's 95, it's yeah. reasonable Yeah, one expectation. would think. But there are like things with my father uh, mm-hmm. that I've never written about. And even if... You know, when he eventually does die, I don't know that I would write about them because I don't think that... Because I think it would hurt him horribly. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody's got things like that. I mean, my sister Tiffany committed suicide. There were things in her life that would just curl people's hair, and I didn't write about any of those things just because it didn't seem fair, I guess. It didn't seem to be I don't know that she I think she did them in a moment of when she wasn't in control, really. Uh, It wasn't so I don't know that I would want to be held accountable or judged forever on things that I did when I wasn't necessarily in control, but Mm -hmm. It wasn't stuff you would ever, 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 ever want to hear from your sister. You know, if your sister's telling you about her evening, it's just, it's, it's, you, you never occurred to you that your sister, that somebody related to you would be doing things like that.
1: Those texts in uh, Calypso, there are two texts in which you mention her. It's Now We Are Five. And also the text when you uh, mention uh, the last time you saw Tiffany mm-hmm. and uh, had um, a stage person shut her out of your reading. And those texts, y- you got both praise and criticism for them. And the criticism was that, um, well, that you um, gave, gave her a, a What's the correct, uh, even, I might try saying it in Swedish, you might understand, <laughs> no, but that you reveal too much about her. What do you say to that, that sort of criticism?
0: What, that I revealed too much?
1: About her. About her, what? After? After she died in those texts. Oh, no. I made her look
0: good. I mean, I mean I'm sorry, I mean. Uh, I. You know, I see a difference between people who have had somebody in their family who's mentally ill and people who haven't. If you have someone in your family who's mentally ill, you just know how exhausting it is and painful it is, and then there comes a time, and you just have to kind of protect yourself. And that sounds very... very... uh, you know like uh cynical harsh. you know it's time for me to be good to me mm. but it sounds very much like that but i mean contact with tiffany could be grueling the things that she would say to you and the things that she would do to you um you know, were hor- horrible you know and you weren't always up for it sometimes you just thought nope not not today satan You know, you just couldn't. (laughs) And I know that there would be people who say, you should have done this, and that wouldn't have made any difference. If someone is mentally ill and they won't take their medication, there's there's nothing you can do. Nothing Mm. you can do. And if I hadn't had the guy shut the door in her face, it's not like she would still be alive. Mm. Uh, She was a really, really... Difficult person to be around mm. she had really intense friendships that ended horribly always horribly sometimes violently um, you just couldn't sh- couldn't trust her if she came to your house, she would go through all of your cabinets and find take any drugs that she could take and and that she could find and take them she she was a handful, you know?
1: There's one line in, in one of the texts about her um, that, that etched itself into me. It's uh, because you often, you write so much about your family, and, and even though you describe them in funny ways and revealing ways, it's, there's still obviously a deep love for your family. And there's one line in that text that said that you couldn't understand how she didn't want to be a part of the family because she distanced, distanced herself early. Um, I'm just, uh, because we all have families. Families are always difficult, and more or less, in uh, like different ways. Um, how has the family regrouped after her passing, or has it just, did she just? Well, it was interesting, because when Tiffany was alive,
0: if Tiffany called somebody, then... Let's say if Tiffany called Amy, Amy would call me and call Lisa, and we would be like, oh my God, Tiffany's on the front last night." And she said, blah, blah. and so everything was about Tiffany. Everything was always about Tiffany. And when Tiffany died, it was odd, because we didn't have that. Uh, we didn't have that anymore. Um, to kind of, just as a common... Interest uh, but it wasn't like you know we all like each other, and we love spending time together so but it, so I guess that's what changed is not having the somebody that was just always the center that way.
1: Mm. I'm going to ask you to read a little bit more for us. And uh, you've brought some uh, entries from your diary with you. Yes. Would you like to hear David Sedaris's diary? (laughs) So this is
0: November fifteenth, 2015, Spokane, Washington. I was in a murderous temper yesterday. Part of it was lack of sleep, part was general tour fatigue, and part was left over from the night before when the producers in Olympia stuck me in a sweltering black box for my book signing. Adam was supposed to collect me in Spokane at around noon, but his flight from O'Hare to Denver was cancelled, so instead he sent a car service to pick me up. The driver, a plump woman in her early 30s, met me at the baggage claim. And when she asked how my flight was, I knew it was going to be a long ride. It's not her fault, but I've had it with small talk. The same lines day after day, I just can't do it anymore. I never caught her name, this woman. She wore a flat-topped cap and a hideous tan-colored dress that looked like she'd made it herself in the dark On her left chin was a tattoo that was maybe four inches tall and looked freshly done. What is it exactly? I asked. Well, (laughs) an anchor, obviously, surrounded by some scripture. Hmm, I said. She smiled. I see you didn't bring the sunshine with you. I gritted my teeth. It was quiet until we got into her car, a big SUV that smelled like a Yankee candle shop. Do you sew? I asked as we headed into town. Me? Gosh, no, she said. But that's a funny question. I stayed at the Davenport. How's your day going? The check-in clerk said. I've been here before, was how I answered. Well, welcome back. I wish you'd brought us some sunshine. I moaned. This morning at breakfast, I was escorted to the table by a beautiful young hostess. How are you? She asked. I said nothing. How are you? The third time she asked, I told her that I was no longer answering that question. (laughs) It's just not important, I said. She gave me the look a person does when they work in the service industry and need to tell someone as subtly as possible that he or she is being an asshole. I returned her look with one of my own that said, actually, you're the (laughs) asshole. She walked away, and as I lowered my napkin to my lap, I noticed that my fly was down. Of course, I thought. Adam was originally going to drive me to the airport at 8.20 this morning, but instead he changed his flight, so I took a car driven by the same woman I had yesterday. How was your stay, she asked. Okay. How was the show? Fine. We were silent for a few minutes, and then I apologized for being in a bad mood. I think I've been on tour too long, I told her. I just can't take the small talk anymore. Here it is, not even 8.30, and I've already been asked how I am six times, she nodded. It's just a lazy question, I said. Why not ask, I don't know, have you ever donated bone marrow? (laughs) (laughs) If the person you ask is in a bad mood, it'll still come back to bite you, I suppose. I guess there's just no way to win. I see your point, the young woman said. I'm not intellectual like you so maybe I wouldn't put it that way but I understand what you mean I'm not an intellectual I said far from it we were quiet again and then I asked what she planned to do for Thanksgiving I'm thinking I'll get one of those kits she said the kind that has everything in it turkey and stuffing and so forth and then in the day I'll maybe play football you play football I asked just tag, she said. Our family does it every year. I got boys. She seemed so young then. How many? Two, she said, one seven, and the other eight. I asked their names and after she told me, and after I had winced, she turned onto the road that led to the Alaska air terminal. My husband died nine months ago, so the holidays, they're hard. I'm not sure if we should do the same things we did last year or try something different, you know? If she was savvy, she'd say this every time she dropped drop someone off at the airport. That's <laughs> what I'd do. Claim my husband just died and rake in the tips. <laughs> but she wasn't like me. She wasn't a snob or a grump, just a young widow in an ugly dress who has two children and is trying to put one foot in front of the other. God, do I feel like an asshole. February 11th, 2017, Portland, Oregon. Hugh and I were in first class on the flight from Honolulu and had been seated for 10 minutes or so when one of the still boarding coach passengers looked at us and smiled. Lucky you, she said, seated up front. (laughs) It's a great spot for people-watching. It could be, I told her. But we don't really count you as people. (laughs) July 1st, 2017, Raleigh. My favorite person at last night's book signing was a 50-year-old man who lives with his mother. What do you do for a living, I asked. Well, he said, I'm mentally ill. And that keeps me pretty busy. (laughs) November 13th, 2017. San Francisco. A joke, Ronnie told me. It's night and a cop stops a car a couple of priests are riding in. I'm looking for two child molesters, he says. The priests think for a moment. We'll do it, they say. (laughs) (laughs) January 27th, 2018, Tokyo. On our way to the pottery shop we like yesterday, we passed this antique store we visited on on our second trip to Tokyo in 2007. I bought a globe here. Hugh said to Amy, pausing to look in the window. It was smaller than usual and on a beautiful stand. We shipped it back to England before leaving, but for some reason or other, it never arrived. He frowned, and I put my hand on his shoulder. That globe meant the world to him. (laughs) September 19th, 2018. Rackham, West Sussex. I walked into the mini Tesco yesterday and was looking at sandwiches when a kid, maybe 10 years old, with a backward baseball cap on his head, turned to me. Are you crazy? He asked. I looked at him. Me? You're a wanker, he said. I bet you just tossed your load, didn't you, wanker? He turned to the man he was with. Look at fucking Stuart Little. (laughs) I guess this was a reference to my vest. I said, who do you think you're talking to? The kid smirked and called me a wanker again. Someone should talk to his father, said the man he was with, his father, I guessed. The two headed to the register then, and as they left, the kid spouted some loud rap lyrics with the word fuck and bitches in them. I said to the cashier, "Who was that horrible child? She was a woman around my age. I don't think he was right in the head, she told me. When I repeated the story of Stable Antiques when I repeated the story to the owner of Stable Antiques, she was apoplectic. He said, What? Was he wearing a school uniform? No, well he should have been in school, a boy that age, and that man, his father or whoever, isn't doing him any favors, allowing him to speak to an adult like that. I don't know what I'd have done in your shoes. I honestly don't. I so appreciated her outrage. Still, I didn't tell her the Stuart Little part, afraid she'd look at me and think, well, you were sort of asking for it. (laughs) I will never wear that vest again. (laughs) April 23rd, 2018, St. Louis. Adam met me at the baggage claim yesterday afternoon, and together we headed to the airport's multi-level parking deck. This involved taking an elevator, and we just stepped inside one and pressed a button for our floor, when a voice called, Wait! There was a woman with two daughters, age maybe eight and ten. Adam held the closing doors, and the girls ran in beside us, panting. Their mother, meanwhile, who was pushing a luggage cart, looked back in the direction she had come from, at her husband, I suppose, who was still a good distance away. The door started to close again, and she yelled to her daughters in a panicky voice, Three! Go to level three! Go to level three and wait for us there! As the doors closed further, I said to the woman, What have to be the scariest words any parent can hear? They're our girls now. LAUGHTER May 14, 2017, Anchorage, Alaska. I met a male nurse at last night's signing. I thought of you not long ago, he told me. I was putting a catheter in a patient, a woman in a coma, when she started to pee. That's common enough, he continued, but then she farted. The force (laughs) blew through the urine, and a drop of it flew into the air and went right into my open mouth. Oh, my God, I said. (laughs) My hands were full, so there was nothing I could do, he told me. Anyway, it made me think of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I was reading, I thought about something you said. What? Um, I never read anything about myself, you know. But when I wrote that story about Tiffany, mm-hmm. I know that people... I didn't read any of the comments or anything. <clears throat> but I know that now... Um, like, there's a movie... Did you see the movie... Um, uh, about... Mexican movie. Rome, Roma. Roma? Yeah. I was listening to this podcast... And they said, you know, that movie wasn't, that wasn't his story to tell, you know, because he wasn't poor. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, you hear that now. That's not your story to tell. But people imposing all these rules on writing, you know, and the beauty of it is writing is that there aren't any rules. And so when people want to impose these rules, like, you're like, I'm sorry, but you fucking made that up. That's not... That's not a real rule. Mm. Um, the, when I, I took a writing class when I first moved to New York City, <clears throat> and it was called Writing Funny. And I took the class because I didn't know anybody in New York. And the woman who taught it was on the radio. I'd heard her on the radio, and uh, I always liked her. So on the first day of class, she said, what are, the first, what are the rules of humor writing? And I said, you should never make fun of anybody who has less power than you. Mm. And she said, "Where on earth did you hear that?" She said, "The only rule is to throw all taste and sense of decency out the window." And I've always <laughs> kept that to heart. Mm-hmm. When I sit down, I think, <laughs> you know, throw all taste and sense of decency, throw it away, and then sit
1: down and write. I'll keep that in mind the next time I sit down to write. Um, I have a question for you. Um, how many steps have you walked today?
0: Well, I'm not going to win any prizes today. I had a lot of 19,434 steps, so it's 9.1 miles.
1: But 19,000 steps is pretty good.
0: If, you have, if you're in your 80s and one of your legs <laughs> is made out of plastic, it's pretty good. <laughs> when I'm at home, my record is 91,000 mm-hmm. steps in a day. Mm-hmm. But today I had interviews and so I got up at 7 o'clock and I walked for five miles before breakfast So I, because I knew that I wasn't, you know, th- that I, so that's what I, I have to meet. I, I don't know, like I have a Fitbit and an Apple Watch and I compare the two of them. But I have a perfect record on my Apple Watch. And every day it would say, you have a perfect record you know, for like two and a half years. Every, you, know, you, you, have a, you filled in all your circles. And is that 10,000 steps per day? Or what it's is a minimum. The, the minimum? The Apple Watch, it's more than 10,000 steps. Mm-hmm. But, and I've got three criteria, right? I have to <clears throat> fill in three circles. And one is calories burned. And one is exercise minutes. So it's not enough to be walking, you have to be walking fast. And then another one is standing time. But then, I flew from Los Angeles to Australia, and I crossed the international date line, and I lost a day. (laughs) And I was devastated. And so, then I had to start over again. I'm devastated.
1: But it's easy to laugh, because it is funny and it's ridiculous, but why is it so important to you to meet these
0: it means everything to me. Why? I mean, it means everything to me. Because I'm an obsessive person. And this was designed, these products were designed for me, for people like me. And I have a friend named Dawn. And they were designed for Dawn, too. Like <laughs> Dawn, I've known her since 1976. And she, when I go on tour in America, sometimes she comes with me. And we checked into this hotel. And we're on the 19th floor, and so I started for the elevator. She said, where do you think you're going? <laughs> we're walking to the room, and I had a 50-pound suitcase with me. You know what I mean? That's no excuse. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, I, know,
1: I know for a fact that there are people in this room that have bought Fitbits because of you. Hmm. Right? Well, uh, then... Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> they, they, are you, know, you sponsored by Fitbits?
0: No, but... I wrote about the Fitbit, and then Fitbit contacted me and sent me all this free stuff. And I found that, I don't know if you have the same experience, when you write about something, like I wrote about Pimsler, the language instruction I use, and then they sent me free stuff. But then they always want stuff for their free stuff, and I Mm. realized, oh, you can never accept the free stuff, because Mm. they wind up wanting you to... But, and the Fitbit, you know, it's a product I believe in. Um, (laughs) I
1: mean. No shit.
0: You know. (laughs) But they invited me to speak to them, and I don't have a job. I've never had a real job. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's going on out there in the workplace. Like, my editor in London told a woman that he liked her hair, and he got in big trouble for it, because he was reducing her to her hairstyle. And so... And, and so there are all these meetings there where people have, you know, sensitivity training. Blah, blah. So anyway, Fitbit invited me to go talk to them. So I go to Fitbit, and I recommended the clit bit. And a woman <laughs> would wear it inside of herself, and when she hit her minimum, it would vibrate for three minutes. Okay.
1: I think that's and a great idea.
0: The room, the temperature of the building changed. I mean. <laughs> and it was people looking at me like can we sue him can we just
1: <laughs> but you do know that the clit and the are two different parts of the i don't i actually don't. just thought i'd tell you you don't insert actually- anything into the clit just <laughs> but can you put something in its neighborhood in the vicinity yes it is big and in- I can tell you afterwards. <laughs> I'm thinking, let's turn to uh, to the audience to see if there's any questions. Sure. How about that? And then I would need some. We would need some lights.
0: Oof. Are there? Well, any I guess questions? what we want is those bright lights turned down a bit, if that's possible. So yeah, it's because it's to very hard out.
1: to see. I see a hand over there.
0: So, so, gonna so gonna if it. we
1: can turn down the
0: lights Hello? There we go.
1: Um, David, does your sister Amy try and offer you advice for your new apartment in New York?
0: Oh, does my sister Amy offer me advice on my apartment in New York? Uh, no, I mean, I lived in New York already, and then uh, she went, I mean, I had her look at the apartment and would not gotten the apartment without her approval. So she came and approved of it. Um, I mean, she was a good person to ask because she You know, she's uh, the thing about. I got this apartment in New York, and a and a friend of mine in London said, "You got an apartment there?" She said, "People who live in that neighborhood are assholes." And I said, "Everyone in New York is an asshole." I mean, I think she just hadn't been there in a long time. Why do you have? You know, like the co-op boards and the. I mean, it's insane! Mm -hmm. It's insane. The
1: How many homes do you own?
0: Twelve. I have twelve houses. I'm rich. And I... uh, (laughs) I earned that money myself. And I love buying houses. Love it. I I get tired of a place after a few weeks, and so I like to go to another home. And then I think, oh, my God, I forgot all about that lamp. Or I I forgot (laughs) that I kept those shoes here. Mm-hmm. And it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Another question? Oh, Please. Uh, yeah. there's. Can you believe I answered that question, honestly? <laughs> I'm I mean, happy you did. I remember a couple of years ago, during the presidential debates, Erased, they yes. asked um, John uh, uh, John McCain. Thank you. They asked him how many houses he had. And he was silent. And I thought, they didn't give him a chance to count.
1: No.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, yes. Uh, David, thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Um, my question is about your voice, your actual speaking voice. Um, it's one of my favorite voices in the world. Uh, really? Well, besides my wife's and my daughter's, so I should <laughs> add. Um, how much do you think that your voice has affected your career? Because, I mean... You've been in a documentary talking about it. Um, yeah. How, how, and how do you feel about your own voice? Well,
0: That's a good question. I asked somebody today, I was uh, on this television program today, and I asked a woman, I said, oh, you've got such beautiful hair. And she said, "She said, oh, I hate my hair. She said, everybody hates their hair. And I thought, well, I mean, I hate my hair. but And I think everybody hates their voice, too. And I can't bear... You know, if I could choose my voice, I wouldn't have chosen this one. But it's good in a way because I think the voice I would have chosen—it's a good thing in life. I can't have everything that I want because—I uh, mean, I, I think my voice suits my material, really. And I think if I had like a radio voice, I don't know that—I don't—I don't know that the what I read out loud would work that well. The same way as like a if if someone's a stand up comedian, I mean you can really count on a couple of fingers comedians who are handsome because the audience is gonna think, like what the fuck are you complaining about? You know, <laughs> I'd give anything to look like you. You know, so it it has to be somebody I think more that the audience or the the that people can connect with. I mean on on a piece of paper it's different because you're you're not presenting yourself physically in any way, and your people aren't hearing you. But it never occurred to me, I was always a big radio listener, always, always, always talk radio, people telling stories on the radio. And it never occurred to me, I always thought, well, I, I can't be on the radio. It would almost be like if you were like completely paralyzed and you wanted to be in the Olympics, you know, like running in the Olympics, you would think, well, I can't even begin to dream about that. So it never occurred to me with this voice that I could be on the radio.
1: Yes, hello. Sorry, that was scary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you st- put the standard so high by saying how are you is a bad question. So I just like let go of all ambition I'm gonna ask you uh, who are some of your heroes and your icons and who do you find funny why
0: oh gosh Uh, who are some of my heroes and icons well lately you know I gotta say when I see a trans person I think God the courage it must take to be yourself and to go out in public, especially when you think like in a small town, and especially when the person's not really going to fool anybody, you know that's heroic to me to be yourself in the face of such adversity um, uh, and gosh, funny to me I, I i don't I don't gravitate i mean if you told me that a book made you cry, and that a book made you laugh, I would read the book that made you cry first. Um, But what makes me laugh, like lately, I'm laughing at this television show called The Other Two. It's about a kid who's 13 and becomes an internet sensation, singing like a kind of a Justin Bieber singer, and it's about his other two siblings. (laughs) Uh, And it's really well written. And it really makes me laugh. Uh, my sister Amy has a TV show called At Home with Amy Sedaris. That makes me laugh. It's a little bit different because it's my sister. And so I can connect the, my private sister with the one who's on television. Um, there's a writer, an American woman named Jim C. Willett, who I remember I came across the short story collection that she wrote in 1986. And god, that made me laugh. And then. She's written several books since then, and I think that they're very funny. Uh, I, I I always think it's funny when somebody falls down. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest video of all time, it's a woman texting in a shopping mall, and there's a low wall around the fountain. It's about this, and she falls right into the fountain. And I can watch that a hundred times in a row, and just howl with laughter, and then she tried to sue the shopping center. She said, because nobody came and asked her if she was okay. (laughs) And she falls into the fountain, and then she gets out of the fountain real quick and runs. I mean, just leaves as fast because she's embarrassed, and she should be. (laughs) I can forgive anybody who's done something that I've done, right? So when I meet somebody who's really pretentious, I think, well, that was me when I was like 21 years old, I have to forgive that. when I meet somebody who says, yeah, I've broken into a good friend's apartment and stolen their drugs, I think, yeah, I have to forgive that. But (laughs) I have never sent a text. Never done it. You've never sent
1: a text ever? And
0: especially not while I'm walking down the street. There's no forgiveness for those people. You know, like... When you're walking and you realize that that's the pace of the person, you're thinking, This asshole's texting. (laughs) Or you look over their shoulder and they're looking at Instagram. And you ever notice that everybody on Instagram, their friends look just like them?
1: Yeah.
0: I have. (laughs) In London, on the bus, I'll look over people's shoulder. And it's like that could be you. That's what I want to say to them. The person looks exactly like you, and they're all like in England lifting drinks. <laughs> all the pictures.
1: But why? Why aren't you interested in modern phone technology?
0: Because I want to. I want to see what's going on. I don't want to. I want to. I want to. I want to look around me. In London right now, uh, these people running around, going around on scooters, and so they've been stealing people's phones on corners. You know, this guy who I know had—they took both his phones. He had a phone in each (laughs) hand.
1: Good. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Do we have another question?
0: There's um.
1: pass the microphone down How do you say that in Swedish pass the microphone Ge Pass the microphone mikrofonen. Mikrofon. Mikrofon. Mikrofon microphone mikrofon mikrofon microphone mikrofon.
0: Mikrofon. Mikrofon. Var är mikrofonen Yeah good Darbartai uh, <laughs> <laughs> Darbartai <laughs>
1: I'd like to know if uh, your friend who blocked you after you joked about liking Trump, if she unblocked you afterwards, or if, what happened? Can you tell the story about that? Yes. So that everyone I, understands.
0: I have a, a, a friend who was st- sending me all this anti-Trump stuff right after Trump had been elected. And so I wrote her back, and I said, you know, I'm sorry, you're too narrow-minded, <laughs> you know, to accept change. And, uh, you know, it's so unwilling to give this man a chance. And then she, and then I wrote her back and I said, Just kidding, but she blocked me. <laughs> and then I was terrified she was gonna tell everybody I was a Trump supporter. And you know how it is, you don't know anybody's phone number anymore. So and nobody has a home phone. So and I just it took a couple of days to get back to her and said, Oh my god, I can't believe that you like I I was on tour and so the sponsor of the reading met me at the baggage claim. And I got my suitcase. And she said, so is that it? And I said, no, I'm, I'm waiting for my golf clubs. And then and I said, I can't believe you would think that I'm a golfer. I can't. <laughs> or that I would take my golf clubs if I'm going to 40 cities in 40, <laughs> 41 days to travel with a set of golf clubs. It would just change everything, you know, to, uh, but yeah, no, she's, uh, uh, she, we're friends, she's realized that I was kidding.
1: <laughs> Is there any last one that dares? Bara skicka mikrofonen tillbaka. Tillbaka. Back. Ah, Send it back back to Ingmar. Okay, so we're nearing the end of our Q&A session. What are you working on right now?
0: What am I working on now? Mm -hmm. I'm working on things to read on my tour that begins in two weeks. So I have a... You know, I like to have something that I read that's got a little bit of gravitas, if I may. But you can't force it on. You can't impose it on things. It doesn't always belong there. But um, my dad, a couple weeks ago, I got noticed that he was dying. And so I flew to North Carolina. And, of course, once I spent a fortune on last-minute tickets, he got better. (Laughter) <laughs> so. He was in the intensive care unit, but then he was back home by the time I got there.
1: My god, you're George Costanza in Teinfeld. That's who you are. Did that happen on that show? No, but someone he, it's something he definitely could say.
0: Um, so I've been writing about that. Um, and I don't. It's, it's interesting, when somebody is that age, you know you always think that every conversation with them is going to be your last one and so you want it to be meaningful and and again if you try, you can't impose that meaning and so and some sometimes too if if somebody is really old like that and you say tell us more about your childhood that means you will die <laughs> probably today so you don't want to be like that you don't want to make them self conscious but i gotta say I had this phone- co- this conversation with my father, not a phone conversation. he he was there, and he thought like oh, really hard and in any minute he can just sort of go away like he, he's not asleep, but he's not awake either and uh we act- he said something to me that was so surprising and so. Uh, If it was the last thing he said to me, then it was perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, So it was one of those times when the essay, I mean, it pretty much wrote itself. It Mm -hmm. really did. Um, And it was, I have to say, it was like a beautiful moment. And it was uh, something I'd sort of been waiting for all my life. And and, uh, I don't... So anyway, I've been... Writing that, and as always, when I start writing something, it's like this big, and everything's in there. And I, I wrote about it in my diary, and I, I did. I, I never do this, but I gave my diary to Amy and to Hugh, and I said, "Would you tell me something I left out here?" Because I, I didn't want to. And they both had. Oh, you forgot about this. You forgot about that. But it's this big, and then you just gotta, you know, you learn to be ruthless and get it down to like twelve or thirteen mm. pages. Because I would never get on stage and read something that's an hour long. Because if people weren't into it, they just kind of zone out. And it's not fair to them. So I'd rather read like four or five things. And I always end by reading my diary. Mm. Do you want to tell us what he said to you? No. Uh, I mean, mean, because I'm writing it, so it's hard for me to talk about something when I'm writing it. And But it was, was, again, it was so unexpected. And usually, I find you can't, if you don't surprise yourself, you're not going to surprise an audience, really. But it surprised me. Mm. So that's what made it good, in a way, that I think it would be a surprise to an audience, just as it was a surprise to me uh, and to everybody else in the room.
1: Well, you have a room full of people that's going to look out for that text now. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not really his son. No I'm kidding. That would be. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. Well, thank you, much, <laughs> <David
0: Cedarus. laughs> thank you very much,
1: David Sedaris.
0: Thank you, Rika.